Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are present, that you are here. Lord, we thank you that you've already met with us through worship. Um, We thank you that uh, you are uh, among us, Lord. We pray that you would continue to be among us, Lord, as we uh, read about your word. Um, God, we pray that you would inspire us, that you would challenge us, and where necessary, correct us, Lord, so that we would be uh, more effective in your kingdom, and that we would continue to bring glory to your name. Amen. So Steve was kind of talking last week about this kind of perpetual cycle that the Israelites are in. So they're kind of saved by God because God hears their cries finally. They um, turn away from God after he's, he's delivered them. Uh, they quickly forget. Um, God raises someone up after hearing the cries again. Um, and that this person is used to do something incredible. The Israelites are then saved by God. The same thing happens. They forget. They turn their backs. And so we go on and on. And actually, this is, again, just another example of that, that basically happening. Um, and actually, Daniel 9 pretty much echoes the same kinds of prayer that uh, is here in Nehemiah. And you don't have to turn to it, but effectively, it's the same words. Uh, he says, um, So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all... All who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We've turned away. It goes on and on. It says, Now, O Lord, O God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made yourself for a name that endures to this day, we have sinned. We have done wrong. Now, O God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. And it carries on. So it's a similar kind of theme to what we're hearing now and what we've heard last week. So in terms of how we are to pray, we have to recognise first and foremost who God is. And this is something we've been talking about already that John's already picked up on. He is an awesome God. He is a God who is faithful and he is holy. And he keeps his covenants despite the disobedience of the Israelites and of his chosen people. And sometimes I think we lose that kind of reverence that kind of understanding about who God actually is. And I think it's quite an easy thing to do because um, the Christian faith is one that totally is different in some sense to any other faith because it's about this personal relationship that we have through Jesus and through what he's done for us, that we can enter into that place where Jesus can be our best friend and our our closest closest friend and that, that love that we receive when we are filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time is something so deep and so incredible. 
But sometimes we can forget that actually God is a God to also be feared as well. He's a wonderful God. He's author. He's creator. Um, and actually the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says himself, the very first things, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And that is exactly what we have to think about sometimes when we come to God. When Isaiah saw um, God in his glory, he felt unclean even though he lived a righteous life. Um, and uh, we see that again if you read in Revelation, the whole story of how like, God, God is um, depicted in heaven. The very majesty of God is all completely portrayed through that passage and through that, through that um, book. Growing up, and I grew up in an Anglican church, and um, it was a fairly kind of high church-ish, I guess. Um, and they have a kind of liturgy, and you have to kind of say the words and all of that. And um, I think one of the really great things that um, the kind of Anglicans, the Catholics, do really well is this absolute <coughs> remembrance of, of this reverence of who God is. Um, that actually, when we when we come to God, when we enter into His presence, we shouldn't come complacently or lightly. Um, you remember Moses at the burning bush when he meets with God and God says to him, take off your sandals because we stand, you stand on holy ground. And that's exactly what we do every time we come into his presence. We are, we are on holy ground. And that's why it's great that when we start every Sunday, we start with worship. We start praising God because it taking, taking all our, instead of our focus on who we are, we can then instead look at who God is. So first and foremost, how do we pray? We must recognize who God is. Secondly, we need to pray with perseverance. See, Nehemiah, he mourned and fasted, and he did this for four months. So God acts when we pray earnestly. I don't know about you, but I always want just very quick solutions. And uh, with God, unfortunately, and sometimes annoyingly, he's quite slow to answer. Um, and I guess, you know, we want to ask, well, why? Why, God? Why do you do this? Why do you take so long? But I think if you think about our own achievements, for example, these things take time. So I uh, grew up as, like, a musician. My parents kind of um, put my sister and I through a lot of kind of classical music and all of that. And I remember when we were young, we used to get up at 6, well, they used to tell us that we had to get up at 6.30 in the morning and practice for an hour before school every single day. And, uh, and I used to hate it, and that, like, if I didn't, if, and you know, it'd be really cold in winter, and it's dark, and it's horrible, and, and if we didn't kind of do it, and we just kind of fell back asleep, my dad would come, and he'd like, bang on the door, and like, turn on the lights and everything. Um, and it, it was painful, really painful, but actually we started to really excel in music, so much so that my sister's now a professional musician, and like, we, I think we see that grounding, you know, the achievements that you make come with effort, they come with discipline. So true if, if uh, we have a career as well. Um, I'm a lawyer by profession, and um, it took me seven years of studying and training before I could actually even become a qualified lawyer. And the same is also true of relationships. So I'm married now to Thierry, and I have to say that when I first met him, <laughs> I didn't really want to marry him at all. <laughs> In actual fact, I think I remember telling him that he was uh, quite boring or something, like really offensive. Um, he just <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, I know that the work all had to be done in me that God did, and uh, it was all the work through me and not him. And uh, yeah, I find him hilarious now. But um, <laughs> but but yeah. So you see, relationships—they take time, they take effort, they take investment. And with God, it's exactly the same thing. We need to persevere. Um, and for those of us who are going through certain situations, we're wanting answers from God. Um, Nehemiah, he fasted. And I think I just really encourage you, if you, go, if you need an answer from God, to fast. 
um, because um, I remember when I first tried to fast, I found it so difficult, and I was just so hungry and so, like, um, you know, preoccupied by you know what I could eat and what I couldn't eat, and just really desperate for time to just pass. And I remember somebody telling me this story about the little boy who who was praying. He was trying fasting as well, and he was like, "Oh Lord, I'm so hungry, and I'm like really bored. I don't know why you call this fasting. You should be calling this slowing because it's so slow. And like all I could think about is this Big Mac and chips. And like, I got another 20 hours to go. And then finally, he heard like this kind of you know he calmed himself and he tried to to endure. And then he heard this still soft voice. And he heard God basically say to him, my child, it's called fasting because it's the fastest way to hear my voice. And I think that really stuck with me because absolutely, I think every time when I've, I've done some fasting or like I've tried to fast, like we, we just hear from God. When we put in the effort, when we um, try to you know, in, really persevere in our relationship with God, he just delights in absolutely showing up. And so it's when we invest and take time for God, it pleases him the most that all he wants to do is respond. So that was the second thing, pray with perseverance. Thirdly and finally, to pray with humility. Nehemiah prayed with the most humble heart. He was fully submitted to God and he was truly servant-hearted. We're going to stand tallest and strongest when we're on our knees. And sometimes when we come to God, we can come with a different kind of attitude. Um, particularly for us, a lot of us who have been Christians for quite a long time, um, this kind of sense of feeling of entitlement. Um, and I've definitely been guilty of this in the past. Um, I don't know, but I've been a Christian since I was about 16. And sometimes I'm thinking, like, well, why do you make it so hard? You know, for some people, they have this kind of road to Damascus experience that Saul had. You know, I've got friends who, like, um, Jesus just turns up in the room, in their bedroom, or like, um, you know, an angel appears, and, and like for some of us, we have, to, we have to endure. It's like we go from kind of lukewarmness to kind of dryness to, you know, God fills with the Holy Spirit, and we kind of get this moment, but then it's, it's like a constant battle. Why, why does he do that? Why, for some people, is it so easy? And for others, we just have to suffer and like endure and, and um, persevere. So if any of us have this attitude, which certainly is the one that I have had in the past, um, I just wanted to spend a bit more time in thinking about what that is because it's not the right attitude to have. Um, and I know that um, all of you know the story of the prodigal son. To me, this is this story very much um, emulates this whole this whole point. Um, we call it the prodigal son, but actually Jesus begins. There was a man who had two sons. And you see, we always focus on the younger son. We all know the story. He uh, he squanders his money. He comes home. He, uh, his father sees him from afar, he's filled with joy, his arms are open, and even before the son comes to repent, the father just comes and embraces him. Um, but for me, the other one, the other brother, is actually a lot more interesting and somebody that I absolutely can relate to a lot more. Um, and actually, I was reading, uh, I don't know if you guys read Owen's updates, uh, the kind of bit which isn't about the Hiltons, but uh, uh, he actually, the last one was, um, was actually on this point, um, on, on the other son, and he was talking about this um, brother in the context of unbelief, um, but I just want to just talk about it in a little different context, um, which is the context of self-righteousness. Um, so I don't know if any of you have your Bibles with you, it's just a very quick digression. Um, or you can use your like, gadget, which I'm sure is what you all do now. Um, we're in Luke 15, so does anybody know who, we actually, who Jesus is actually talking to at this point? So, who, who are the crowds? Who is he actually talking to? You can speak up or not. 
Anyone? So it starts at the beginning. It says, uh, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear them. And then it goes on, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It carries on. So he was talking to the Pharisees as well as to sinners. Suppose I'm sinners. And I think sometimes we just over-sentimentalise this story um, because we're not actually, he's not faced with a crowd that are weeping and wailing and, you know, Jesus is saying, you know, and everyone's going to Jesus saying, oh, you know, how great you are. Um, maybe some of the tax collectors are doing that, but the majority of them are Pharisees and they're absolutely furious when they hear this because they know that it's really targeted at, targeted at them. And actually, they're so furious that in a few chapters later, they're going to try and plot to kill Jesus. So if we read from just, I think it's uh, verse 25, um, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and and asked them what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he was back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I think you've got to kind of feel a bit sorry for this guy. I don't know, like I absolutely feel somewhat sorry for him. He's, he's the one who's worked hard, he's the one who's been faithful all this time and all these years, and there's no party for him at all. I've been slaving for you, I'm the one who's never disobeyed you. I've never had any of this. This isn't fair. He's the one who's sleeping around with all the prostitutes, and yet you're the one who's rewarding him. What about me? So he's actually refusing to go in to join in with the celebrations. So what's actually keeping him out is not actually his badness, but it's his goodness. Because he's lost in the end, not not despite his good record, but because of his good record. And so here we get to the core of the gospel message. It's the humble that are kept in, but it's the proud who are left out. And hopefully you find it familiar to what I was saying to the attitude that, that I had before. This is why the real gospel truth is so offensive to the so-called religious. Because you can run away from God by breaking the rules, but you can also run, run away from God by keeping them. The religious person obeys God to, to control God, you know, God owes me, that's kind of the attitude. It's kind of obeying God to get some sort of leverage over him. But the true righteous Christian is somebody who, who just obeys God because they want to get more of God, knowing that it just pleases him and wanting to draw closer to him. So the elder son is kind of fighting for his own father's things, <coughs> the things of his father, rather than the father himself. And it's sometimes when we completely go away and run away from God that it's easier to recognise the need to come back to the Father. But sometimes you kind of stay sort of close as an alternative, you kind of do the right things, um, but it's your self-righteousness that actually draws you away spiritually. There's that kind of feeling of entitlement that you think you actually should have, but you don't have. And this is one of the dangers, I think, for the church. Um, so some of the traits I think that we should look out for with, with these kinds of attitudes that may potentially be in our hearts, we can just list them very quickly. But the first is anger. So verse 28, the, the older brother was filled with anger. Secondly, there's kind of joyless, mechanical obedience. You know, All these years I've been slaving for you. So where's the love for the father? 
Thirdly, the cold, this kind of cold disdain for others. Verse, verse 30, the reference is to you know, the son of yours, rather than acknowledging the fact that this son is actually his brother. You know, sometimes when we're in church and someone's raised or blessed or encouraged or, or deserves some praise, you know, we should be standing alongside them and encouraging them and building them up. Um, you know, we should be making sure that people in this church are elevated as they deserve to be, rather than kind of, you know, just having a bit of that jealousy and thinking, oh, you know, it should be me instead. And that's what we need to get to. We need to get to that stage where we're spiritually raising other people up so actually one day they'll excel us and out, outdo us. That's what we need to have. Fourthly, the lack of assurance of the Father's love. Verse 29, you never threw me a party. As long as we try to earn our way to heaven, we're never really going to know if we've done enough to get there. And finally, the same kind of unforgiveness, you know, that unforgiving, judgmental heart. See, he had the lack of humility to say, instead, instead he should be, have been saying, you know, I'm no different from this brother of mine. I'm no, no different. But rather he says, oh, I'd never do that. I'd never have done that at all. And he lacks the spiritual maturity to say, you know, I'm so loved by God. I'm so loved by my father. So what does it matter that, that my, my brother has wronged me? So you might all be thinking, well, it's all very good, Emma, well done. Um, but uh, we're looking at Nehemiah. Why, why are you in Luke? Um, and this is all very true. Um, <laughs> but the point is, I think, you know, we need to have the correct attitude to the heart that Nehemiah had, which is this heart of humility. And only then can we move on to what to pray, because otherwise this next bit is going to feel pretty uncomfortable and may actually feel uncomfortable anyway, but I'm just going to move on. So, what to pray? So, Nehemiah prays prayers of confession and repentance. Firstly, he confesses his own sin. (coughs) We're going to struggle to hear from God if we're holding on to sin. Purity of heart and the power of God are connected And I think hidden sin or unconfessed sin is probably the worst because it's going to stifle our relationship with God and it would also potentially also stifle the growth of the church. (coughs) And I was praying a bit this morning, I was talking to John about it, and um, I was just praying about um, just how you kind of um, talk about this sin, uh, this point about sin, because it can just be quite uncomfortable. And when I was praying, I really sensed that for somebody here, and maybe even um, more than one person, um, but for somebody here, there's potentially somebody um, struggling with um, some kind of form of habitual sin, something that they have just always kind of been caught up with. Um, and if this is right, I just kind of really would encourage you that today, I really feel that this is a time where you can be completely released from this and that God wants to do that. <coughs> and as part of that, I just wanted to share a little bit of my testimony because I struggled with a similar kind of thing. For as long as I can remember, I have had a problem with lying, you know, kind of dishonesty. Somewhat ironic that I turned out to be a lawyer, but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yes. Anyway, so I, as far as I can remember, I had this kind of default position, which was the the lie. So it would just come up in like a normal conversation. So somebody say, you know, uh, have you read this? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I've read this. Or you know, have I have I um, have I do I know something? Do I do I know something about this? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I know this. And it's like I it's like I had no control over it whatsoever. That would just be my default. I didn't know truth from the lie. 
Um, and it got pretty bad when I was about 12 or 13, something like that, 13. I um, ended up just speaking to my friends at school. There was about four of us. We were very close. And um, I remember just telling them loads of stories about basically how I was ill. And it was pretty bad because it, it, you know, I talked about basically how I was dying and I had this illness and that illness. And I told them not to tell anybody because I didn't want anyone to be caught. And, um, and yeah, and I guess it must have been a kind of sense of um, insecurity or whatever, but this must have happened for really quite a long time. One day over the summer holidays, I'll never forget that day, my mother got a phone call from like one of the mothers of these girls. And like, my whole world absolutely came crashing down. I kind of found, got found out. I was actually pretty popular at school and certainly with like teachers and stuff and like quite relatively good academically and so you know to be caught and know that it was actually all going to turn really bad was like the worst thing for me <laughs> ever um, and you know for the next few weeks or months I don't know how long it seemed like forever but I think my life must have just been absolutely miserable in like getting found out and you know that sense of shame and that sense of guilt that you feel is just like absolutely no way I'm going to be forgiven how my friends are going to look at me again aside from that just like how awful it is um, and shortly afterwards, I think I actually became a Christian on the other course. Um, and I remember that that moment when you know God fills you with the Holy Spirit, and I just remember this sense of feeling like you know just like chained, as I had felt chained for the whole of my my whole of my life, having to deal with this. And suddenly those things, that those chains just being released, and physically feeling lighter, and all of that just kind of going. And it's just like yeah, you know when. Um, the Bible says that we are a slave to sin and that when we become Christians we're no longer slaves and that sin has lost its claim over us. And so whereas I should be standing here, well I could be standing here, we're pretty ashamed and embarrassed to kind of you know, tell you and to confess this to you, um, you know, sin really has lost its claim over me that I now can just talk as part of my testimony. It's, not, it's just part of my story now. Um, and so I just want to encourage you if anyone is going through a similar kind of thing, um, really, that this is your this is your moment. Um, one John one nine says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. He will purify our hearts. He will forgive us from all unrighteousness. But it goes on. If we claim we are without sin, He makes us out. We make Him out to be a liar, and His word has no place in our lives. So whether or not we are struggling in that way or not, we, it, part of our regular spiritual lives should be about confessing our sins regularly. Um, Romans 8 says there is no, condemna no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So do we understand the difference between condemnation and conviction? Because condemnation, if we feel condemned, the fruit of condemnation is this whole thing, this whole feeling of shame and guilt and, you know, just, I just don't want to even say it out loud. I just want to pretend in my church or wherever because it's just so shameful. I can't bear to kind of confess it out. And so if there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if it doesn't come from Christ, then it has to come from the enemy. Whereas conviction, conviction comes from the Holy Spirit because the fruit of conviction leads us to repentance. It's the fact that when I feel convicted, I'm so challenged by what I've heard or you know, by my sin that all I want to do is fall on my knees and repent. I want to say, Lord, you know, I want to be better. I want you to work in me. Forgive me for my sin. I'm not going to harbour the point anymore, but um, I would just encourage you just to, to take an opportunity, if this, this is for you, just to either speak to John or to, to one of us, if, uh, if, or just, just get someone to pray with you, but just don't leave today with, without taking that opportunity, if this is for you. Um, Luke 15, Jesus actually says, you know, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents 
than 99 just people who need no repentance. So, Nehemiah, he confesses his own sin. He then confesses uh, generational sin. So he confesses the sins of his father's family. <coughs> and we can be affected emotionally, but we can also be affected uh, physically from the sins of earlier generations. And so repenting of those sins can assist us to ensure that the links that kind of continue throughout through the generations basically are, are broken and that they play no part um, in, in us making the same mistakes going forward for the next generation to come. The best example of this I can think of is a personal one of my own. My parents, they um, were basically forced out of India because uh, my dad's parents didn't approve of their, their marriage. Um, and so they came to Wales basically with nothing at all. Um, and, and as a result, uh, my sister and I, we've never really known my dad's side. We've completely been cut off from that side of the family. Um, and on my mother's side, she's an only child. So she is now caring for her, her kind of old parents, or her, her father's now not alive, but her mother is in India. And, and so she has to care for, you know, 6,000 or how many miles it, thousands of miles it is for her, um, you know, dying mother as a result of being here. Um, and you know we we are so meant to be so close to them. They're a wonderful side of the family um, that we have sort of known as much as we could you know, over the years of going back back and forth to India. Um, but the relationships that we should have been having, that we should have had, um, we just haven't haven't had um, as a result of of uh, having to live here. And a few years ago, um, then my parents they got divorced. Um, and obviously it's for, for many reasons that they get divorced, but, um, but one was actually just the damage um, that my dad's family had basically, you know, that, that kind of damage that they had done finally kind of taking its toll, toll. that they'd actually endured so much, um, and yet the enemy had kind of taken a foothold in their marriage. And if, uh, shortly after that, when my parents got divorced, my dad remarried, um, and he's now, yeah, and I have a stepmom. Um, <laughs> And you know, that really, surprisingly, much more than I thought, has really damaged both my sister and I, and I'm sure both my mum and my dad as well. My point being that there is a choice that we now make, you know, God willing, baby due in November, my sister has two children, and we have a choice, the same choice. Can we look at my dad and basically judge him and have this kind of unforgiving heart, and can we just kind of hold that because we deserve to hold on to that? but then basically allow generational sin to then affect our own children as well, and then their children? Um, or can we choose to, to confess the sins of our family and deal with it head on? Yes, this is what happened to my father's fathers, but this is a choice that we now make to completely cut that off, so it, we're completely released as a result, and our children, our children's children, will be broken. That, that chain will then be broken. Confessing generational sin. For some of us, it might be something we have to do. But for those of us who are thinking, well, none of those two things apply to me, great. Um, we'll then move on to, um, thirdly, corporate sin. See, Nehemiah includes himself when he admits the rebellion of his nation. I think for us, this must feel quite weird, like quite an odd concept, because in our country, I think we're actually quite apathetic. Um, and you talk to people like Thierry or somebody in Miranda where um, you, know, you ask them what is their main goal, what is it that they want to achieve um, in their jobs or their career, and the answer that you always get is that they want to do something that will help improve their country. 
that's like their prime motivation. And I, to me, that just sounds completely bizarre. Like, I actually work for government at the moment, and I don't think I've ever thought to myself, oh, you know, I really want to improve Britain. Um, it just sounds complete, complete nonsense. Um, and yet this is so different to what Nehemiah thought. And it's also the challenge for us um, that we are actually implicated in the decisions of our leaders because of the fact that we've elected our leaders. And it's whether we're in, whether they're, whether in government, whether in our jobs, whether locally, whether in our churches, we have this re responsibility, and that's why praying is so important. So we can really ask, you know, what's our role? What's our role in situations like in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, Central African Republic, South Sudan? I could go on and on and on. Do we have a role? Do we have a responsibility? Well, what's our role in, in world poverty? Or never mind world poverty, what about homelessness in, our, in Brixton? What about confusion in our schools about um, pornography or sexuality? Do we have a responsibility? We need to understand that in our role, we have a role in our community, um, and we have a responsibility that, that has been given to us by God, and that we need to intercede for situations such as this, like the world affairs, for God to work in them. And this is exactly what Nehemiah did. So now once uh, Nehemiah has repented, he then has prayers, and these prayers are for action. Nehemiah wasn't somebody who said, you know, God, please make it all better, you know, do your, do your stuff. He said, God, please use me. Nehemiah's job hadn't actually prepared him at all to... Uh, to construct, you know, to kind of construct the walls of Jerusalem. He was a cupbearer, he was governor, um, and he was actually unknown to the Jews who actually remained in Jerusalem. And yet God called him to lead the restoration. God doesn't make mistakes in using us, but sometimes we're just not always listening because we think that um, we're not really expecting him to kind of work through us in the way that we expect. It's always something different or something that's more aligned to our way of thinking. But in the book of James, it says, you know, faith and actions, they work together. The person is going to be justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And that's great because we've been doing this whole thing about evangelism and, and prayer and how they run together. And, you know, we've been praying for the people in Britain with the balls. And we've been praying really faithfully about New Day and for Alpha. And that's really fantastic. And we need to just carry on doing that and be um, challenged to continue. But we also need to be challenged to act as well. And whether that's even just speaking to our friends or inviting them to, uh, having the courage to kind of invite them to Alpha or to church. These are the things that we need to do because there's a lost world in our community just outside. Um, and that's what God is calling us to do, to try and get involved. Prayers of action and then stepping out in faith. So finally, um, yeah, I just wanted to say, well, what's the outcome then? What's the outcome of, um, of Nehemiah's prayer? Prayer necessarily leads to response from God. He can't help at all uh, but responding to his chosen people. That's what he does. And we are inheritors, inheritors of God's original promise to Abraham and to Moses. That when we are in a loving relationship with God, he just delights in responding to us. And Nehemiah also received favour from God as well. The, the walls of Jerusalem were actually rebuilt in 52 days, really, really quickly. And it also led to fruitfulness. As a result of Nehemiah's faithfulness, 
revival was actually seen in, in Jerusalem eventually. But it took four full months of preparation in prayer. So I leave you with this one challenge, which is, what can we do? What could God achieve through us if we dedicated this amount of passion, this amount of de dedication to our spiritual lives and to our prayer life in particular? Can we see healing? Can we see transformation in our community? Can we still see salvation for our friends and our family? Can we even see revival? You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.